The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Without further ado, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab a hold of them. Let's open them up to Luke chapter 2, okay? Uh, You can open a phone or a tablet to Luke chapter 2, or there are hardback black Bibles under every chair. Luke chapter 2 can be found on page 857 in those hardback black Bibles, but uh, Luke chapter 2 is where we are at, so I'd love for you to meet me there. If As you're turning there, I want to confess something. And that is that Advent, the season that we're in as a church, Advent, uh, is just kind of a weird deal for me personally. Advent's kind of a strange thing for me uh, because I didn't grow up going to church. I wasn't raised in the church. And so really the word, even the word Advent, had very little meaning for me until I became a Christian. Like, uh, it just wasn't kind of in my vernacular. In fact, before I got saved, I was 16 when I got saved. Before I became a Christian at 16, I think the only occasion or like the only sort of association I had with the word Advent was because of Advent calendars. That's the only way I knew that word existed was an Advent calendar. But hear me, an Advent calendar was not for me kind of the Christian thing with like devotionals that you do each day to kind of prepare the way for baby Jesus. That's not, that's not how I did Advent calendars. Uh, no, for me, it was, a, it was a piece of cardboard, a cardboard flat box with little doors that would open up, and there was candy in there, like chocolate in there. You know what I'm talking about? They still sell these at the grocery store. That's the Advent calendar that I did, and it helped us count down the days, not until Jesus, but a different guy would show up, okay? This fat white guy would break into our house and then <laughs> eat, eat some of our food and, you know give us gifts that we thought we had earned with our righteousness, but apparently we weren't actually that good. But I never got cold, so I didn't understand. It was incongruent in my mind, but that was, that was Advent for me. That was how I grew up, and then I, I became a Christian. I started following Jesus. Uh, and I thought, like many of us do, when I became a Christian, when I, when, I, when I started following Christ, I thought that my life, like things in my life, would start to get fixed, like, I kind of thought, hey, I'm, I'm following Jesus now. Things are going to start to get fixed in my life. And hear me, some things did get fixed. Some things changed in my life. But in Christmas time, as a new Christian, it kind of got a little weird for me because they would always preach on the names of Jesus during Christmas, right? He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. And I got those names. I liked those names. But there was one that, that kind of threw me. And it's because they called Jesus the Prince of Peace. That was difficult for me. Because, because if, if, if he is the Prince of Peace, if Jesus brings peace, and now I've got Jesus, then, then my life should be peaceful, Right? Like, especially at Christmas time when there's peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Like, like that's, that, that, that's where my brain was. And then I started to look around at my reality, and it didn't look very peaceful. And I wasn't quite sure how to reconcile that in my brain, because it, it was only a couple years after becoming a Christian, I was a college student, that my parents got divorced. And... Uh, And I remember specifically the first Christmas after my parents' divorce going home and realizing, oh, this is going to be different. It was changed for me. 
wasn't like it when, when I was a little kid and they were still together. Another Christmas, uh, it was my second Christmas after getting married to my wife, Marcy, and uh, really we, we were out Christmas shopping when she got very sick. While we were Christmas shopping, she got very sick and it began a 10-year journey with an undiagnosed illness. This long-term kind of undiagnosed thing which really marked the first decade of our marriage. It's hard. It was hard. It was Christmas, but it was hard. And then it was the day after Christmas, so December 26th, 2011, when my mom, who was down in Colorado Springs, was rushed to the emergency room with an extreme pain in her abdomen, uh, and we got the news that no one wants to get, least of all during Christmas, that she had cancer, stage four colorectal cancer. See, all this stuff happened right as like I'm lighting candles and celebrating peace on earth. And it's like, hey, where's, where's my peace, Jesus? Like if you're the prince of peace, if he's supposed to be the prince of peace, what do you do when you look around all around you and, and it's not looking very peaceful? How do we reconcile this? Well, we've been preaching through Luke chapters one and two. This is the, the gospel writer Luke's account of the Christmas narrative, this Advent. And, and we've been looking at pairs of, of individuals in these, these accounts. So we looked at Joseph and Mary, and we looked at, uh, at uh, Elizabeth and Mary, and we looked at John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth uh, and Zechariah. Thank you. I should just put this in my notes. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate you. Somebody was paying attention. That's why he gets to read scripture, okay? <laughs> And today we're introduced to the last kind of couple of characters in the chapter. And this is a guy named Simeon and a woman named Anna. Simeon and Anna, lesser known characters uh, in this narrative, but vital if we're to understand what Luke's trying to teach us in his account of the birth of Christ. And so there's something in this text today that I think addresses the issue we have with peace. We'll see it. We'll see it in the text. Let's work through this together. Luke chapter two, follow along with me. We're gonna pick it up in verse 21. Luke two twenty-one. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. All right, let's pause there. Uh, you, you, just to catch you up, like that, we skipped a whole bunch of verses, okay? We haven't done any of Luke chapter two yet, just so you know. Uh, we skipped a bunch of verses that you're probably really familiar with, and that's because next Sunday is Christmas Eve, and if I don't talk about that on Christmas Eve, I'll get fired, okay? So we've got to deal with that stuff uh, next week, but today we kind of fast-forwarded, and so let me just catch you up on the narrative, just in case you're newer, okay? Jesus... Jesus Christ, the son of God, is born basically in the alleyway behind a La Quinta. That's about the contextualization that you need. I mean, it's like behind a Holiday Inn Express. That's where this guy is born. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. But, but this text is after that's happened. This is after Jesus has been born. And now his birth, uh, after his birth, he's being taken through some of the Old Testament ritualistic acts necessary for Jewish births. 
Okay, so, so this was the first one. They will circumcise a Jewish baby boy on the eighth day and name him. They name him Jesus. We saw this with John the Baptist, okay? We saw this back in chapter one that they circumcised John on the eighth day and that's when he was named John. So let's keep going. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So those verses sound really like it talks about the law of the Lord. And so let me explain this. That section is a compilation of a couple more Jewish rites necessary after the birth of a child. So there's the circumcision that happens on the eighth day. 32 days later, after that, a purification ritual is needed for a woman who has given birth. So per the Old Testament law, if a woman gives birth 40 days after that, she remains unclean for those 40 days. And now Mary, because of this childbirth, is considered unclean. She needs to be uh, presenting an offering at the tent of meeting for uh, her cleansing spiritually, ritualistically in the ancient Hebrew tradition. And so it says that they, they are there to make a sacrifice. But then it also says that they're there to present Jesus to the Lord, which is a whole nother tradition. So there's really three traditions in these few verses, okay? The circumcision, the purification of Mary, and the presentation of Jesus to the Lord, which is a practice from the books of Exodus and Numbers concerning the firstborn son. It comes after the Israelites are rescued from Egypt and they dedicate, as it were, the firstborn of every family. So so the best way, again, I can put this is this. It's kind of like they show up to church on child dedication Sunday. That's kind of what's happening. It's a dedication Sunday. There's some sacrifices happening, but this is what is going on at the temple. Now, the interesting thing to note in those verses, in my opinion, is the sacrifices that they made. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it says that, that Mary and Joseph offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so if you were to read Leviticus chapter 12, there's a chapter, that chapter is titled Purification After Childbirth. Okay, so uh, it's a great read, Leviticus 12. I won't even quote it to you because I'm sure you have it memorized, but uh, it's also why, like hear me, it's also why, you ever wonder why like your Bible reading plan always seems to falter at Leviticus? Purification after childbirth. Yeah, you're just not, it's not a delightful morning reading plan, but that's in the text, okay? Here's what Leviticus 12 says. It states that a mother of a male child 40 days after giving birth is to go to the tent of meeting and to offer offer this sacrifice. Here's what the, the Bible says. One lamb and one turtle dove. That's the prescribed offering for purification, But then if you keep reading in Leviticus 12, uh, in that same chapter, a little further down, it says that if the mother could not afford the lamb, then she, she was to sacrifice two turtle doves or three French hens (laughs) or a partridge in a pear tree. One of those three things. Okay. But uh, no, just, it literally only says two turtle doves. It says they can offer two turtle doves. And so, like I said, a couple weeks ago, this is how we know that Joseph and Mary were poor. They were an impoverished 
family. They, they, it's because they were offering two turtle doves or two pigeons rather than a lamb and a turtle dove. They couldn't afford the lamb, so they were making the offering of the poor. And again, once again, God did not and God does not come to the self-sufficient. He doesn't come to those who, who think they've got it all together, who think that they can, can afford it, who think that they've got all of their ducks in a row. He comes to those who are needy, who are helpless, who are fully relying on him, who know their weakness. And so it is with Jesus' parents. They were poor. Now, on to what I think is the strange part of our text today. So let's look at verse 25. So they're at the temple. Verse 25, now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So that's Simeon, our introduction to Simeon. And already from the get-go, we see in this text that Simeon is one of those, I mean, he's just a little out there. Little, I mean, he's just a little wild-eyed, okay? Uh, I, I, you just read it, okay? He's the guy telling people that he's not gonna die until he sees the Messiah. I mean, the best way I can recount this is like, he's like the guy on 16th Street with the, the sign that the, the end is near. Like that's, that's this guy, but he's, he's there. He's in the temple. For the record, at this point, the Hebrew people have not heard a, a word from God for over 400 years. God's been silent for 400 years. And now Simeon is saying, I'm going to see the Messiah before I die. That's his bold claim. But but I do want to point out that the part of those verses that I think is so important is stated twice there and once in the next verse. And that is that all of this is not just some fanciful, wishful thinking. It's, the text says that it was revealed to him by the Spirit. So he's not just off of his rockers a little wild in the head. The Spirit has revealed this to him. And it's my first point I want to make about our text. Jesus is revealed by the Spirit. Jesus is revealed by the Holy Spirit. Luke says it's the Spirit who gave Simeon this insight about a baby being the Messiah. And I want to offer this to you doctrinally, theologically. That's actually the only way that anyone ever accurately identifies who Jesus is. The Spirit has to open your eyes, open your mind to that reality. You and I both, we all need the Spirit of God to open our eyes to who Jesus is, to his majesty. And hear me, you can't muster that on your own. You can't do that on your own. So gosh, every Sunday, there are people in this room who are not, they don't believe in Jesus. They're just here, they're checking things out, and I appreciate that. So if you're not a believer in Christ, and you're kind of thinking, well, I'm, I'm actually seeking him out. I'm searching him out. I'm interested in him. I just want to kind of figure this stuff out. I'm telling you, theologically, the only reason why you're even interested is because the Spirit of God is beginning to woo your heart. He's calling after you. 
The Spirit is drawing you and opening your eyes. This is why it says in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, when his eyes are open from his blindness, it's like scales fell from his eyes. This is an image for us for what the Spirit does as he illuminates and opens our eyes to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Our eyes are brought open by the Spirit. And now hear me, it's really good news. It's really good news that Jesus is revealed by the Spirit for a couple of reasons. One, it means Simeon's not off his rocker. He's nuts if it's not the Spirit. Did you know that? Okay, But, but, but because it's the Spirit, he's not. But that's also really good news for all of us, specifically for me as a preacher. As a preacher, that's great news for me because it means it's not up to me to try and convince you through my sermons who Jesus is. It's not my job to reveal Jesus to you. It's my job to preach the word. It's the Spirit's job to open your hearts. So that should take some pressure off of me, okay? I, I just, I don't feel that pressure. I don't want to feel that pressure. If you're like coming down the hall, you're like, hey, my unsaved friend is here today, Chris. Better be good. You better, you bring in your A game. You're not talking about money today, right? Like, you better bring it. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. That's not my job. My job is to reveal the word to you. Only the spirit can reveal Jesus to you. That's my job, okay? But listen, it's also really good news for each one of us, for all of us in here, okay? Because if you're a Christian, gosh, I imagine that there are people in your life who you really want to believe in Jesus as well. Gosh, I've got friends, family members, coworkers, not, not coworkers, neighbors, okay? <laughs> we only hire Christians at the church, okay? Just so you know. Um, but you have coworkers. We have people in our spheres of influence who we desperately want to know the love of Christ. And while you have a part to play in that, hey, it's not on you. It's not on you to get them saved. It's not on you. It's, it, you, have a, you have a role to play in sharing Christ with people, but it's not your job to make them believe. And you're not a failure if you don't. Gosh, that should free us up to actually share Jesus, the good news of the gospel with people without fear or reservation because it's not our job to get people to believe. That's the Spirit's job. But now how does that apply to peace, Pastor? Like, what does that mean? Okay, well, what that also means is that then everything that happens to you that might disrupt your peace is under his sovereign control as well. Like if it's the spirit who reveals him, if it's the spirit that's in charge of all of that stuff, then it's also the spirit who allows for some stuff to happen, even when it doesn't make sense to us. We'll talk more about that. Let's keep going in our text. Look at verse 27. And Simeon came in the spirit, so there's the third mention of it. He came in the spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Please don't miss how wild a scene that is right there. We read over it, and it's like, oh, it's nice. No, that's not nice, okay? Mary and Joseph show up, okay, fall. They show up to church on Child Dedication Sunday. We just did this a couple of weeks ago. Babies up here in arms, crying, grabbing microphones. Like, that's the scene, okay? 
Somebody slaughtering a lamb over in the corner. That's the scene. The ancient Hebrew scene. We don't slaughter lambs here. But like, but like, that's what's going on. Mary and Joseph up here dedicating baby Jesus when some random crazy old guy that they don't know runs up on stage, snatches baby Jesus, spins around and says, now I can die. <laughs> this is in the text. This is the Bible, y'all. That's, that's wild. Hey, how do you think that would play out if that happened here? Okay, Royce, you come snatch some random baby on stage and start talking about death. I'll tell you what, we ain't gonna bless you, brother. Okay, we got a security team for that. We will get the baby safely back in mama and then we will tase you, okay? This, this is a wild scene. This is a wild scene. I just don't want you to miss how unbelievably insane this sounds if you're thinking about this clearly. Now let's look at it again, his message. It's interesting, verse 29 again. He says, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace. He's not meaning depart from the temple. He's talking about dying. You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So, this is the message that sim- he like busts into song, like a prophetic song when he's holding baby Jesus. And the text earlier says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Okay, consolation of Israel means like the comfort or the relief of Israel. And, and the spirit now reveals to him that this little baby, 40 days old, 40-day-old Jesus is the comfort, the relief, the consolation of Israel. That's the peace that Simeon was longing for. And the Spirit shows him, there's a baby. He's the consolation of Israel. See, for the Jews at this time, their greatest longing was for political deliverance and freedom. And Simeon is a representative of that. It it started, they've been oppressed for 700 years by foreign powers. Started, you can read about this in the Old Testament, started with the Assyrian and the Babylonian exiles. God's people are ripped out of the temple, out of Jerusalem and put into exile. Then it came by the Persians and then the Greeks. And now in our text, the Roman empire is over God's people under whose rule it was the most harsh of all of uh, of these empires who ruled over Israel. So I think that's applicable. Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel in that occupation. And I think for us, as we look around, anybody, anybody looking around at our world today and just wondering, what in the world is happening? What is, what is going on? God, when are you going to bring this peace on earth stuff that Linus talked about? Where, what's happening? Anybody feel that? You look around at our world, at our country, and you just think, what is happening? That's the kind of peace that Simeon's looking for. That's why Simeon's in this text. He's longing for peace, and the Spirit reveals to him that this little 40-day-old baby Jesus is the solution. Now, he's not the solution that they were all looking for. 
and his solution would prove to be very different than even what they thought it might look like. But he was the Spirit's solution for the peace of their nation. And now hear me, he is for us too. He's the solution for the peace that our world needs as well. We'll get more into that, but let's keep going. Verse 33. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, which that's wild right there, okay? I just mentioned what happened. I grabbed the taser. I can't even imagine what Marcy, what Mama Bear would do if sweet little Harper got snatched up during child dedication. She'd lose it, okay? But maybe, maybe if you've seen an angel nine months earlier, you're just like, okay, go take, take the baby. That's fine. Yeah, whatever. I, verse 33 is wild. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's where Simeon gets confusing to me. That statement right there. Um, because consider what he said in his song of praise when he grabs baby Jesus, and now what he says to Mary and Joseph. He said, as he's singing, this child is God's salvation. This child is a light to the Gentiles. This child will bring the glory of Israel. But, and he turns to Mary, he's like, many will fall. Many will rise. And a sword is going to pierce your soul as well. Now that's creepy and feels incongruent from that first message. Okay, God, his salvation and light and glory is found in this child and he will pierce and expose and divide. How do those things fit together? How do we reconcile those thoughts? Well, it's my next point. Jesus brings peace through conflict. Jesus is revealed by the Spirit, but Jesus brings peace. He does. He is the Prince of Peace, but he does it through conflict. So, so, so like I said in my intro, okay, sometimes I look around the world and my own world, my own little circumstances, and I think, well, if he's the Prince of Peace, he's not doing a very good job of it. Like, if this is his job to bring peace, why isn't it very peaceful? And I would just answer myself in a real moment and answer, that's because I don't think we really understand how Jesus brings peace. I think we misunderstand how he brings peace. He actually brings peace through conflict. He does it through conflict. Jesus came to bring peace through, these are his words, a sword that will pierce your soul, divide your very heart. And this isn't just, you know, Simeon's wild words. Jesus says this very same thing in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. I'll put this up. He says this, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, so that kind of messes with the Prince of Peace thing, Right? Is he the Prince of Peace? Did he come to bring peace? Or did he come to, I, I did not come to bring peace, but rather a sword. 
Can you imagine how this would screw up our Christmas marketing if we took this message seriously? (laughs) Right? I mean, seriously. Three French hens, two turtle doves, and a sword. Like, the song doesn't play out the same way if we do that. Like, it would mess things up. But this is how the Bible teaches that Jesus brings peace. He brings peace through conflict. So I'm trying to think through how, like, how my brain can handle this idea. And I thought of these illustrations, okay? Marcy and I, uh, first of all, there's nothing good on TV right now, okay? I don't know if you know this, but we scroll incessantly. There's nothing good on TV. I need something new, okay? If you know of something good, let me know in the hallway afterwards, okay? Uh, and I don't, whatever, okay? But, so in lieu of us not having anything good to watch, we are re-watching good stuff from the past. There was better stuff in the past. I'm just going to say it, okay? Hot take. TV stinks. But we just rewatched a show on Netflix called Band of Brothers. So good. So I, it might be rated R, so I'm not sure if I've actually seen it or not, but I would commend it to you. <laughs> okay, Band of Brothers. Uh, Band of Brothers is a show about the 101st Airborne Division in World War II. Okay, uh, and, and, and so uh, as I'm thinking this week, and we finished Band of Brothers, I'm thinking how... Did the U.S. military bring peace in the European theater of World War II? How did they bring about peace? They picked a fight. They they entered the conflict. they, They did it, hear me, with the sword. Because we're at war. Another thought, how how does a surgeon bring peace to your body when when there's an invader, when there's a tumor growing inside? The surgeon must spill your blood. Right, the surgeon has to cut you open. It's the only way that your body can have peace. So 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 what is the Bible saying? Like, Like, does Jesus come to bring peace or a sword? Yes. Guys, it's both. He comes to bring peace through conflict. And that's really important because when you and I say the word peace, we need to know what we're talking about. We need to know what we're talking about because for most of us, when we think about peace, we think of circumstantial peace. That's, that's, that's where my mind goes. That's probably where your minds go most often. We think about favorable circumstances. That's peace. Comfort or, or safety or, or self-satisfaction. Like, that's peaceful. That's primarily what we mean when we talk about peace. We mean circumstantial peace. But hear me, the biblical understanding of peace is so much richer and broader than that. It's more than just circumstances feeling peaceful. The Bible in the Old Testament uses the word shalom. You may have heard this word, shalom, which is loosely translated peace, but that's the Hebrew idea of peace. And it means more than just like a peaceful feeling, a peaceful, easy feeling, right? Everything is feeling good. I've got a little cash in my pocket and I'm feeling good. Sounds like a Lannis Morissette song, right? You guys don't even know who she is. Um, (laughs) Peace, shalom. It means, the best, the best translation I've heard is everything as it should be. That's peace, that's shalom. Everything as it should be. Wholly connected 
with God. And so Jesus is saying, I think, if you're only looking for circumstantial peace, I didn't come to bring that. If that's what you're looking for, you might be let down because that's not what I came to bring. I, I came to bring a sword. And that's the way that all things are going to be brought back into unity with how the creator intended them to be. Shalom. But it's going to require some conflict. Because we're at war. Sin, brokenness, the cosmos is at war. Surgery is necessary because there's an invader. There's a cancerous cell that's gone rogue in your body. And if you don't cut it out, it's going to take over. There's conflict. Okay, we got to finish this. Let's move to 36 because we've not even talked about the second person in this combo. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, Anna is entered into the equation. There's not a lesser known character in the Christmas narrative than Anna. She gets a whopping three verses. You may have never even heard of her. Three verses, that's all we know about the prophetess Anna. And really, only one of those three verses is, says anything about what she did. Right? I mean, the, the, verse 38 says, Anna comes up very same hour as Simeon did on the day that Christ is presented. And then in response to witnessing Jesus' dedication, she gives thanks, she praises God, and she sees what so many else present missed. Not what Simeon missed, but what a bunch of other people missed. And that is, this child is the redeemer of Israel. <laughs> she sees it and she talks about it. And, and that's it. That's all that we have about her. But then verses 36 and 37 are really interesting. They don't tell us anything that Anna did, but rather Luke spends two whole verses in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ talking about who Anna was. And this is really important. We're told that she was married for seven years. First, why would he tell us this information? She says, or he says that she was married for seven years. So assuming that she was married at 13 or 14 years old, which is the you know, normal marrying age in the ancient Near East, that means that she would have been widowed by her early 20s. By her early 20s. And then the text says that for the next 60 some years, she lived as a widow. Six decades living alone. It's safe to say that no girl dreams of her life turning out that way. I think that's safe to say. Having a husband die young 
And hear me, this has happened in our church. There were two women on the front row who lost their husbands young in first service. It's safe to say that wasn't their plan either. But especially in those days, to be widowed at such a young age, listen, widows usually had few ways of providing for themselves. They were in big trouble, which meant they were often subject to poverty, to abuse. They had no one to take care of them. I think it's safe to say that that Anna represents someone for whom life has turned out very differently than she expected it would. And I think that's why Luke includes her in this narrative. So it's here, I'll make my last point. Jesus redeems our expectations. So follow the train of thought. Jesus is revealed by the Spirit. He then brings peace through conflict and redeems the expectations that might be shattered. So, so let's think back to our last point for just a second, okay? If, if Anna, at 20-something, when her husband died, if she put all of her hope in circumstantial peace at that moment, all of her hope in that circumstantial peace, then her life for the next six decades would be done. It'd be over. All of her expectations were shattered in her 20s with the death of her husband, and it could have been the end of her life but the text makes it explicit that that's not what happens because when she hits 84, she's standing in the temple, praying, fasting, worshiping, and witnessing the baby Jesus. She's a prophetess. So for six decades after her world exploding, blowing up, she dedicates herself to the Lord in ministry in the temple. And gosh, that's not like prescriptive for all widows, like all widows got to get a church job or something. That's, that's, that's not what's going on here. But what it does show us is that there is a peace available in the midst of broken expectations. Her circumstances didn't change, but she still found peace. So now hear me, if you're looking for circumstantial peace, Maybe you haven't lost a spouse, but you might have something this Christmas that's causing you to question peace. And so you're, so you're maybe looking for circumstantial peace. I'm just telling you, as a pastor for 20 years, you won't find peace in circumstances. That's not available to you. If you're looking for peace in your work, you won't find it there. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how high up the corporate ladder you crawl. You will not find peace at work. You won't find it in your hobbies. You won't find it in money, no matter how much or how little you want, no matter how much you want so that you can give it away. I don't care. There's no peace found there. You won't find it in, 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 in amazing experiences. You won't find it in parenting. And gosh, if this text shows us anything, it's that you can't even find peace in marriage because it can be snatched from you so fast. And then just for a second, listen, Let's for a thought experiment pretend for just a hypothetical second that you did, that you found circumstantial peace. Because, because I know people who think, gosh, I could probably, with enough money and the right retirement and laying on a beach and playing enough golf, I could find circumstantial peace. But let's just pretend for a second, okay, that you find circumstantial peace, which you won't, okay? But even if somehow you did, like if you made all the money, never had to worry about money again. Doesn't that sound nice? Sounds great to me. 
okay? If you've made all the money, if you skied every, every mountain, every run, never had to deal with any traffic on I-70, somehow you'd learned how to escape that. Like that was perfect. So like you got it all, okay? If you had tons of friends, you're the most popular person. None of your friends ever uh, betrayed you or said, they used like the best friend and you had so many friends. You have all the toys, like you, I don't know, you got a ski-doo or something. I don't know why you want a ski-doo, but like whatever your toy of, of uh, you, just, you got everything you ever wanted. And you had a long, happy marriage. A long, happy, healthy marriage where you and your spouse both, both die together in your sleep on the same night, like in the notebook, Okay which doesn't happen, okay, just sorry. I've been in the death room. I've sat at the deathbed. It doesn't work like that, it's fiction. But even if you did all of that, even if you got all of that, listen to me, you'll lose it. Because I've sat at the deathbed and I've had the conversations when there's family and friends around. And now hear me, even if they're all there and it's all perfect, It's only you and your pillow when it's all said and done. Merry Christmas. Listen, even if you get it all, you're still gonna lose it. Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, back to Simeon. Remember, he grabs baby Jesus and he spins around and he says, I can die. He says, I can depart in peace. Hear me, the only way. As a pastor, I've witnessed this. The only way you depart in peace, the only way you can die in peace isn't to find circumstantial peace. No, it's to be in relationship with the Prince of Peace. It's the only way you'll get to that bed and that pillow and the last time you close your eyes with peace. We live in a world that cannot satisfy. And oh, it allures and it calls and it bids and it welcomes and it comforts and it's all fleeting. But if you can get beyond that, if you can move past circumstantial peace and look to the Prince of Peace, you can begin to comprehend that he's so much better, that he's in control, even over our circumstances, even over our unmet expectations, the loss of a spouse at a young age, even over that. Jesus did not come to bring circumstantial peace. He said that clearly. Rather, he is peace. And he came to bring himself for you. Jesus doesn't promise to make everything better in your life. He says, I'm better than life itself. Come follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. That's why I think Anna's in here. I think Anna's in the text because all her expectations for how life should have worked were shattered. And yet they're redeemed by a little baby, 40 days old, her savior. 
So what's the answer then, church? You know, we're a week from Christmas Eve. What's, what's the solution for this peace problem that we all seem to have? Well, it's simple, but it's not simple, and it's this. Surrender your peace to Jesus. Surrender your peace to him. Like you have to surrender those circumstances that are tied to your peace. You have to surrender them to the Prince of Peace. You have to surrender your peace to him, to Jesus. Like I don't know how you can get past some of the circumstantial fracturings that happen in life without him. I don't know what kind of pain you have in your life right now. Like maybe you've, maybe you've lost a loved one recently. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe you have prodigal children and you're just waiting for them to come back and they have not donned the door yet. Gosh, we have a lot of college students. You guys are about to leave for Christmas. I remember leaving for Christmas, going home, and it not being the same. I don't know what you're walking into the next couple weeks. Maybe you're walking into something and it's not peaceful, it's broken. Maybe this is the first Christmas without a special person. Or maybe you're just not sure how you're going to pay for this Christmas. Whatever it is, have you surrendered those things? Have you surrendered those circumstances to Jesus? Like, do you realize that, that when you surrender your life to Jesus, you are primarily surrendering control? The way I like to think of it is that you've got closed fists around all the stuff of your life, and, and to surrender it is to just go, to open them up is to let go of those things. You're opening your hands and you're saying, God, my, my circumstances are all screwed up. It's all non-peaceful. It's all messed up, but I trust. I'm gonna trust you with it because I trust that your ways are better. I trust that you are sovereign. I trust that you are in control and I trust that you are good. And instead of holding on so tight, you just release that grip, grip. And, and hear me, Jesus says this very clearly in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So don't worry, okay? That's why I brought this back up. He is the Prince of Peace. I know he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but he's bringing peace. He's offering you peace. He's just not offering it in your circumstances. But he says, in me, in Jesus, you can have peace. And then he goes on in the very next sentence. In this world, you will have tribulation. So there's the dissonance, right? He just said it. In me, you're going to have peace, and it's going to get rough. Life's hard. Life in a fallen and broken world is hard. It's painful. It's full of trials and tribulations. And some of you are like, hey, that's my Christmas. That's what I'm at right now, okay? But then he says this, take heart. I've overcome the world. You love that logic that he says, hey, in me you can have peace and life is going to be hard, but don't worry. I've overcome it. I've overcome the world. So hear me, if you're in a situation this Christmas and you need that, 
you need peace. You need the prince of peace to rule and reign in what seems to be circumstances that are completely out of control. If that's where you're at, I just want you to know it's not lost on me today. Like I'm not preaching from a posture of like, I've got this all figured out and we'll sprinkle you with some fairy dust that's from the Holy Spirit and we'll go and have an awesome time. That's not the reality, okay? I don't wanna take anything away from the pain that you guys are feeling. I don't know what's making this season difficult, but I don't wanna take any of that away. I, I want you to understand that I know those things and, I, and I've had some of those things in my own seasons and I'm just not naive to the brokenness that's represented among our church. We don't need to put on some happy Christmas face here. But I do want to encourage you that whatever it is, like whatever it is, I don't want to minimize those circumstances, but I do want to call you to find peace that can transcend those circumstances. So here's how we'll end. Just in a minute, like we always do, I want to invite you to come back for the prayer team. The prayer team will be in the back of the room, just like always. And I want to invite you to come back and pray with one of our men and women who wear prayer name tags um, as we enter into this Christmas week. If you're walking into this Christmas and you need some peace, you don't have that peaceful, easy feeling that John Denver is so full. You know what I'm talking about? I would invite you to come back. Receive prayer. We offer this every week, but as we enter into this week, I just want you to take advantage of the opportunity to be prayed for because true peace is the offer that's on the table from him. True peace. But just know, peace is a person. Peace isn't a change in circumstances. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord, we do bless you. God, as much as even in the beginning of my sermon, I confess that I don't understand Advent and don't really get it. It seems a little weird to me. Lord, the thing that I love so much about reading the Christmas narratives in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel is that there's so much grimier than any of us wants to admit. Because I want to look at my Christmas through the lens of nostalgia, which lies to me. Nostalgia lies to me, God, that that my Christmases were perfect growing up before my parents got divorced, because they weren't. And nostalgia lies to me that that my Christmases were awesome until my wife got sick, because they weren't. And nostalgia lies to me that, that my Christmases were great until mom got cancer, but they weren't. They were always a mix of hard and awesome. They were always a mix of good and difficult. They were always a mix of of peace and of trial. And I don't want to bite on the promise that nostalgia gives me that there can be some sort of idealistic Christmas that I could reach out and grab a hold of if I just get all my circumstances in order. God, help me to, to not believe those lies. I pray that over my friends, my my brothers and sisters in here. There there may be some real circumstances that are devoid of peace, and I pray, Jesus, that we would let go of those things and that you would show up, that you would flood through the power of your spirit into those areas. And you don't promise that you're gonna fix them, but you promise that you'll be present and that you are the prince of peace. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for the grimy, real account of the birth of 
your son. Help us in this, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit and all God's people said,